0: Tonight's scripture reading is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 43 through 46. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see," said Philip. This is God's word. All the different texts about the origins of Jesus, where he comes from, have a, a kind of common theme. So, if you go to Matthew and Luke, we're told that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which wasn't a big urban cultural center like New York City. It was a little little village, and Jesus wasn't born uh to uh in a comfortable home but in a stable in a feed trough a manger he wasn't born to middle class parents but to poor parents uh he wasn't born in a uh surrounded by heads of state but by shepherds who were social invisibles nobody's bottom of the social ladder and his family wasn't um it wasn't a pillar of the community uh he was born to a uh an unwed pregnant teenage girl who certainly in that small town culture would have been disgraced and stigmatized the rest of her life, and so would the family, and so would Jesus have been. And here, now, you know, in the book of of John, you don't have any birth narratives, but in the very beginning of the book of John, right away we see that Jesus was from Nazareth. He wasn't just born in Bethlehem, he was from Nazareth. And Nathaniel's uh, question shows the pecking order. Everybody in the world is part of a pecking order. Uh, everybody in, in Rome would have considered Jerusalem a backwater. My gosh, Jerusalem. And everybody in Jerusalem would have considered all of Galilee hicks, backwoods. Oh, my gosh, Jer- Galilee. And we know that Nathanael was from Galilee. He was actually from a town in Cana. But inside Galilee, there was a pecking order because, because obviously Nazareth was the backwoods of the backwoods, because here's, here's Nathaniel saying, Nazareth? Oh, my gosh. Who in, of consequence could ever come out of Nazareth? See, the manger, Bethlehem, Nazareth, uh, his parents. Every marker on Jesus, as far as the world was concerned, said to the world, here's a guy of no consequence at all. Everything about Jesus was unimpressive. See, everything about Jesus was, uh, oh my gosh, Nazareth, Bethlehem. But, and here's the theme in that manger, in that apparent servility, was the greatest royalness and kingliness. In that apparent weakness, was the greatest strength. In that apparent uh, obscurity, was the most history-changing event of all, the birth and life of Jesus Christ. In that manger, in that feed trough, in that dirty feed trough, absolute glory was at work, and nobody saw it. Nobody saw it. It was off their radar. It was off the map of the world. Why? Because true greatness is always invisible to human eyes. At least corporately speaking, the world, the institutions of the world can't see it True greatness is invisible to the human eyes, and God loves to work in ways that turn the expectations of the world upside down. And so we read in 1 Corinthians 1, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose uh, the lowly and despised things of of the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. And so you might say the theme is, all that is gold does not glitter. In fact, most that is gold does not glitter. Now, how do we apply that? Two ways. I mean, once you understand it's what Christmas is telling us, I'd like to apply that to our lives in two ways. One, the way we live sort of corporately in the world, and one, the way we, we handle life individually. First, the corporate. You know, I've got a funny, I have a funny career, as many of you know. I've only had two churches. One was in Nazareth, one was in Rome. One was in in a small town in Virginia which has grown 23 people in the last 30 years. I didn't say 2300 or 23,000, 23 people. I know the 23 people actually. Everybody else does too. And uh, I had to go back there uh, uh, this fall, uh, back in November. They had their 60th um, anniversary. And they asked me back to speak. And I went back in the middle of the, of the week. It didn't, didn't go on a Sunday. Um, and I said, gosh, great. It was a homecoming, 60th anniversary. What do you want me to speak on? I've been away for, I mean, I went there 30 years ago, 31 years ago. And uh, was there for about 10 years. And they, here's the question. They said, please, you know, we listen to your sermons and all that and about New York and about the culture. But what we'd like to know is of what significance can a a little church in a very little town in the middle of nowhere, what significance can we have in the work of the kingdom? (laughs) Hmm. So I preached on this text. And here's what I think I need to say to us here. Both of these facts I'm about to tell you are true. And when people grasp one, it tends to drive out the other one from their mind. And when they grasp one, it tends to drive out the other from their mind. It's very hard to find a body of of Christians, certainly, who seem to be able to keep the two together. And the one is that human culture does tend to flow top-down, center-out. Cultural trend. I mean, if you're the chair of of sociology at Columbia University, you have more cultural influence than if you're the chair of sociology at a community college in North Dakota. That's the way the culture works. And it tends, to, it tends to flow from the top down. It tends to flow from the centers, especially these big urban cultural centers like New York City, out to the margins. And that's the reason why we at Redeemer have always said it is absolutely crucial that the difficulty and the expense of living in a place like New York City, that we pay that cost, it's worth it. Because just to live, just to live lives of service, just to live lives of integrity here in a place like this, means that we can be salt and light in our society in a way we couldn't be anywhere else. So human culture tends to be top-down. But the fact is that God's spiritual renewals and spiritual awakenings that he sends into his people tend to come from the margins to the center. It tends to work inside out. Now, you can not only see that with Jesus and with the apostles, but with almost every spiritual awakening and revival and renewal ever. I mean, you know, almost, you you don't, when I go through Britain, for example, whenever whenever you talk about the great awakening of of the late 1850s, it spread all through the world and tripled the number of of, uh, people in the churches in in North America and Britain. You know, there was one. You know, there was a, a revival in New York City from about 1857 to uh, to 1859, and something like uh, the, the the membership of the churches of New York City in that time, like tripled or something like that. Uh, I did some research on it. It was just in two years. It was amazing, and there was a was a great awakening like that that happened in the 1730s and 40s and so on. Where did the Great Awakening in the 1850s, the late 1850s, start? It started in a little uh, barn out in the hills in the rural areas of Wales. You can go see it. It's the way it works. Uh, the, uh, the centers of Christianity, where the power is, where the learning is, where the, the, uh, uh, the endowment funds, where the money is, where the great universities are, where the great cathedrals are, North America and Europe. But God, for the last 50 to 100 years, has been sending revival to Africa, Latin America, and Asia. And that's where most of the Christians in the world live now. Because what God does is he works in Nazareth, and he works in Bethlehem, and he works in feed troughs. And that's where the renewal in this world is coming. That's where the vitality is. God always works like that. Now, what does that mean? Point one, can we live, as believers in Christ, in the middle of New York, can we live in a place of the of, of most incredible brilliance New York is where the smartest people live, the most powerful people live, the most talented people live. Can we live in a place of brilliance without being blinded by it? Can we realize, on the one hand and the other hand, that we should live here to be salt in our society, but that we must be absolutely, it's just absolutely critical, we should never despise the non-glittery, the people without connections, the people who don't have the right things on their resume, the people who aren't attractive physically in other ways, and we must never despise in any way the marginal and the poor. And it's not just that it's, it's not enough just to care for them in a paternalistic way, but respect what God is doing in their lives and listen to them. Is that possible <laughs> that we can believe both those things at once, The culture tends to flow top down and God's renewal tends to flow from the inside out, from the margins to the center? Is there some way that a body of, uh, certainly Christian believers could understand that, how different we would be. You know, the thing I used to always read to my folks in Hopewell is that place in the, uh, Hopewell, Virginia is my Nazareth, by the way, Uh, and is that place in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, and in The Great Divorce, uh, it's about, it's a parable in which C.S. Lewis goes to heaven and he has a guide showing him around heaven and all sorts of lessons he's learning, but at one point he sees this incredible, huge, gorgeous woman coming and people are all worshiping God around her and singing her praises and and dancing around her, and she's so beautiful. And Lewis says in the book, he says, I only partly remember the unbearable beauty of her face. So he turns to his guide. Is it? Is she? Is she? I whispered to my guide. Not at all, he said. It's someone you'll never have heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. That's Nazareth. But she seems to have been a person of great importance, I said to my guide. Have ye not heard, my son, said my guide, that fame up here and fame on earth are two quite different things? So that's the first thing. Don't despise the non-glittery. Don't be seduced by a human celebrity. Let's make sure we not only care for but respect what God is doing at the margins and amongst the marginalized. That's number one. But number two, more individual and more simply, your biggest sacrifices, the things that you are doing for God, to be faithful to God, and the things that you are doing for others, to be loving and faithful to others, the biggest sacrifices, the best that you are bearing, and the best things that you're ever gonna do in life, almost nobody's gonna see. Doesn't that bother you? Well, I'm here to say, in the light of Christmas, this shouldn't surprise you, and it shouldn't embitter you. Because real greatness is always invisible to human beings. Jesus was off all the great things he did. He died in the dark, you know. Nobody saw. He, was, he lived in obscurity. And in the same way, that's what Christmas is saying, is don't be surprised if right now the thing that you are bearing and the thing that you are doing and you're trying to be faithful to God and you're trying to be faithful to other people and the thing that you're trying to do, essentially nobody sees. The, 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 most, the greatest sacrifice you're making, nobody sees. Don't be bitter. Don't be surprised. Because somebody does see. The only eyes that count see. That's what Christmas is saying. Jesus was born in a manger. Nobody noticed. And yet that changed the world. See. See, nobody saw. And in the same way, the things that you're bearing right now nobody sees. But don't let that get to you. Somebody sees. You say, oh God, right? Yeah, of course. And how can I say, yeah, of course? But believe it or not, there's more to the answer than that. In Hebrews 11, um, there's a place where uh, the, the Hebrews writer is talking about all these great heroes of the faith. And and these great heroes of the faith, men and women who did the right thing, they sacrificed for God, they sacrificed for one another. And the world uh, ignored them, the world was... They forgot them, they were unappreciated, they were martyrs in many cases, Uh, they suffered, they did the right thing no matter what the terrible cost, okay? And then when you get to Hebrews 12, suddenly, at the beginning of Hebrews 12, after this long list of heroes, suddenly something is said that is rather surprising. In Hebrews 12 we read, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of all these witnesses, these heroes... Let us throw off everything that hinders and run the race with perseverance marked out before us. And Craig Kester, who uh, wrote the Anchor Bible Commentary on Hebrews, says this, The Hebrews 11 dramatic account of Israel's heroes of the faith reaches a surprising climax as listeners find themselves on a racetrack being cheered on by a cloud, which was a typical Greek word for a crowd at a stadium. See, the Hebrews writer is is showing you all these great heroes of the faith who suffered, and suddenly the Hebrews writer turns and says, And they're now watching you. The author invites hearers to envision a stadium in which Abel, Enoch, Noah crowd along the track with Abram, Sarah, Moses, Rahab, the judges, the prophets, and the martyrs. The striking imagery is designed to transform the listener's perception of their situation from one in which they are beleaguered, unnoticed victims to one in which they are vigorous contestants who can hope eventually to participate in the festival gathering in the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Johnny Erickson, in her book A Step Further, tells about a woman she knew, a young girl she knew, named Denise Walters. Her story was incredibly sad. Denise Walters was a senior in high school in Baltimore, Maryland 1968, and one day near the end of her senior year, she was going up a set of steps, and she tripped because her legs felt weak. And um, by the end of the day, she could hardly walk, so she went home early, and she took a nap. And when she woke up, her legs were paralyzed. Three days later, her arms were paralyzed. About a week or two later, she was blind. She had a case, of, an unusual, rare case of fast-accelerating multiple sclerosis. And over the next number of weeks, she lay in a rehabilitation hospital, but she was dying really fast, and, uh, it, and her, her story was so hopeless and so devastating to everybody that nobody really came to see her except her mom, who just came and read her books. And Johnny said in her book about Denise, it just troubled her enormously. Uh, it said, uh, I thought maybe Denise was suffering so people could see her patience and maybe be turned to God. But it didn't happen, because nobody came to see her. Nobody saw or cared about her love for God, her extraordinary patience, and her absolute trust in his plan. Nobody ever told her, I want the kind of life you have, how do I get it? Nobody ever did that. Her suffering seemed to go for nothing, like precious rainfall pattering down on an unappreciative ocean while desert dwellers only miles away languish from thirst." And Johnny Erickson was just very troubled. Denise Walters, she was suffering and she was so patient. She was so kind. And nobody saw. Nobody saw. You know, what good was it? And she was wrestling with this, but she was at a Bible study with a couple of her friends, Diana and Steve, one day, sometime later, after Denise died. And they were studying Luke 15, and they came to Luke 15, verse 10, which said, There is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one person who repents. And suddenly Johnny realized there is a reality bigger than this world. There's a theater bigger than this world. And everything I do for God, everything you do right, every sacrifice you make is seen. And it's going to, just like Jesus Christ, who did all that he did, unappreciated, in obscurity, see? Dying in the dark, born in a manger, nobody saw. And yet, his work redeemed the world and set... Someday, we'll set the whole universe laughing. Nothing but joy. You too, everything you do, you're seen. You're celebrated. Everything is seen. You're not alone. Just because the the main sacrifices that you're making are not seen, be faithful. Be faithful. That's the reason why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Therefore, brothers, let nothing move you. Always, always... Give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because your labor in the Lord will never be in vain. Listen, if Christmas didn't really happen, if God didn't really become human, if Christmas is just a kind of nice story, then the joy of Christmas, the partying and all that, is temporary, and the suffering of this world is permanent. But if Christmas really happened and God really became a human being at Christmas and he broke into this world to redeem us, then the suffering of this world is temporary. And the joy of the new heavens and new earth and the city of the living God and angels who rejoiced, by the way, at the manger when nobody else did, that's permanent. Let us pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us take what we learn at Christmas, into the center of our lives, to shape the way we live in this world socially and psychologically, corporately and individually. Give us joy. Give us justice. Because we know what happened at Christmas. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.